Welcome back to Deep Focus. My name's Quaid, and I'm here with the co-host Nick. How hey you guys, doing? welcome back. Uh, it's uh, been a while. <laughs> yeah. Between holidays, finals, getting sick with COVID. Yep. yep. Yeah. We All are finally both. back and ready to start with a new year. Yeah. And we are going to do Mank today. Uh, I've been thinking about the episodes we should do. And of course, best of 2020 came to mind, but <laughs> there's going to be like, I don't know, 10 films I've seen that came out this year. <laughs> so yeah. maybe we'll have to figure out how to do that somehow. But we can anyways, maybe combine the two years, best of 2020 and 2021. <laughs> yeah, maybe we will. Or maybe we'll or just best do like of the pandemic. That would be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Anyways, uh, we did watch Mank, Netflix original, David Fincher. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, Lead it away. Oh, and just so everyone knows, it's uh, it's a film about the guy who wrote Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, uh, you know, spoilers, obviously, uh, go watch the movie so you don't get lost and also so you don't get spoilers. But if you don't yeah. care, whatever. Also, <laughs> or if, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, it might be a good idea to watch Citizen Kane. Or if you don't remember it at all, it might be mm. a good idea to rewatch it. I watched it with somebody who had seen Citizen Kane a long time ago, and they were a little lost, so I had to pause it and point out who the characters were and what they represented, you know? Mm. Okay. So, Yeah, I guess like sometimes we take it for granted because it's just such a famous like film story, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not the Mank- Mankiewicz part, but like uh, definitely the Orson Welles part. Yeah, it's allotted um, as the best film of all time. Generally, uh, yeah, it's very. You odd. think that's why uh, David Fincher decided to make it about Mank, like just because that story was less known? I don't know. Uh, possibly, I think you know. I think a lot of directors sort of fall in love with Hollywood and the town of Hollywood themselves. Mm. And they find these stories they want to tell. And it just sort of happens at the end of doing it. I mean, you see a lot of sort of love letters to Hollywood, whether or not they're based on real things. You know, I think about once upon a time in Hollywood, La La Land, Hail Caesar happens mm. like once a year, at least that a big director or just a great movie in general gets made about Hollywood. There was that one uh, Trumbo or something with Brian Cranston recently. That was also a screenwriter movie. That was like a year mm. ago. Um, yeah. There's a lot of screenwriter movies. The Coen brothers did one. I forget what it's called. Uh, Barton Fink or something um, about this sort of embattled screenwriter story. But it was interesting because this didn't, I don't know. It didn't come off to me as like the typical, I'm a screenwriter fighting the studio kind of movie. You know, it was very much more like a biopic, a chapter in the life. Sure. Um, and surrounding kind of like a, I don't know, like a semi betrayal. Um, I don't know. That's kind of, what it felt like to me was that Fincher was kind of pointing the finger at not like pointing the finger accusatorily at Mankiewicz, but um, just kind of saying that like, you know, Orson Welles always gets all this praise for being the one that like stood up to Hearst. But yeah. Um, like Mankiewicz was the one in his inner circle and, you know, was the one that really wrote the piece. That's true. That Mankiewicz you know? had the real life experience with Hearst that, Orson Welles didn't have. Um, and right. by the way, Citizen Kane is Hearst, and Hearst is Citizen Kane. Yeah, he was a um, real life um, 
media oligarch, a sort of tycoon, um, and had tremendous influence over the news, the press, uh, entertainment, back in a time when people were much less questioning and much less sort of desensitized or disillusioned with media in general. Right. So very powerful guy. Yeah, not that that kind of thing doesn't still go on, but um, I think there's a lot more players in the game these days. And people are dramatically disillusioned as well. Back That's then, true. you know, they they took it as the truth, you know. Yeah. Whatever was said. Which is interesting. I saw a lot of criticism. That's one of the main things I want to bring up about mm-hmm. this film. But I saw a lot of criticism. And by a lot, I, you know, a couple of articles <laughs> that I skimmed through because <laughs> sure. I didn't want to read all of it because I thought it was ridiculous. But a lot of criticism thrown towards David Fincher about uh, portraying the media you know, in this film as sort of like controlled as, you know, as an agent of the rich, whether it's the studios or <laughs> would you imagine that? <laughs> I know. Uh, so. Wonder who that was written by. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> um, it is an interesting tact though, because you do see like, I think Steven Spielberg made a movie recently. I didn't watch about, you know, Washington posters, a lot of movies. It's a whole genre of movie of, you know, the embattled journalist fighting for the truth. And, those are true stories and that does happen, but you don't see it very often where there's a movie that sort of, sort of tries to do a a subversion of that sort of belief, that sort of archetype that Hollywood has created. Right. Yeah. Um, the noble journalist. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I kind of liked, it kind of felt like the beginning of the age of spin a little bit, like that whole, uh, idea that that one director's uh campaign ad ended up uh screwing over what, what was the guy that was running uh yeah uh, it was the guy upton sinclair the great novelist yeah, sinclair. he wrote like oil hey like, there will be blood is based off of was bill nye the science guy playing sinclair i don't know i don't think so i don't really? but I, now that you're saying that i'm wondering because uh, <laughs> it, it looked very it looked like much that. like him um and it sounded like him too, so I was just thinking that maybe, uh, maybe uh, Fincher <laughs> approached Bill Nye, the science guy, to be Sinclair. Oh, look at that, Bill Nye, Upton Sinclair. Yeah, really? Him. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was, I was just sitting there during that moment, and that pulled me out of it for a second, just because you know that was all of our childhoods at public school, just watching Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, no. Hey, was this shot on uh, actual film? Because I kept seeing the cue marks up there, but I didn't know. Like, I I just have a hard time imagining David Fincher being okay with shooting on film and not having that like uh, freedom that he usually does. You know, because he's so about uh, like perfection when he's um, in the editing room that um, it kind of took me aback seeing him do a black and white film and make like seeing those cue marks and that made me think that it was actually shot on film. Sure. You know, um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe it was digital and they just added the Q marks for effect, but, um, yeah, I think they added the Q marks probably, but the thing is, I thought something similar to you where I was watching and I was like, Hmm, he must've done a lot of sort of post work on this digital to make it look like film and get this like, you know, black and white, almost noir feel to it. Um, but before we start recording, I looked it up and it's not his usual cinematographer. It's oh, this really? guy, Eric, uh, Mr. Smith. Uh, so I am wondering now as well. I mean, I could search it, but yeah. Um, 
It would okay. it would be interesting. Uh, the film was shot on on in black and white on Fincher's preferred red digital camera. Okay. Uh, Reference the aesthetics of Citizen Kane cinematographer Greg Toland. Okay, so it seems it seems like they did shoot on digital, and then, yeah. um, I don't know why I I think it's because because like uh, just because of how Fincher is when I saw the Q marks I was kind of like bullshit like you didn't shoot on film <laughs> yeah I mean like, he did like uh, I immediately thought of Fight Club because he did some of that in Fight Club as well yeah so. yeah but I mean not not that that makes him bad or anything like um he is extremely metic- meticulous and I would say that like from uh as far as digital cinematography goes, he is probably one of the most meticulous uh, directors out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we talked about this during seven, but he's notorious for um, just, you know, hundreds of takes and or dozens of takes at least. That must've been interesting on this as well when he's, you know, because he's essentially giving a ode to a sort of old dated way of making films in there. Like there were several times where I did see like a new shot, like a David Fincher shot in there, but typically it was sort of like the standard way that you would see something shot, but done through the lens of David Fincher, you know, right during that time, which was nice to see. The light was really cool too. I liked his use of uh, light fixtures, you know, that really harsh lighting that black and white used to do. It looked nicer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but aside from like you know the the whole film aesthetic like uh i saw that he brought uh atticus ross on this one too it wasn't just trent reznor uh i don't know if he did that for i feel like maybe he did that for gone girl as well but i think that that's almost all of them frankly i think it's always atticus ross there's uh, always a duo there's always somebody it's it's nine inch nails that's the uh uh but I think that's all of Nine Inch Nails, right? Isn't it just two guys? I do not know. Let's see. Um, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross on Gone Girl. I think literally every Trent Reznor score also has Atticus Ross. I was just looking at... um, Hold on. on. Nine Inch Nails. Because I'm pretty sure that they're just Nine Inch Nails. uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. And then they just go by their actual names when they're doing film scores. What did you think about it? It wasn't to me. It wasn't too. Yep, members what, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross. So it wasn't it, what you usually expect out of you know a Trent Reznor score. Uh, yeah, like um, I didn't, I couldn't clearly identify it as Trent Reznor, but I, you know, I'm pretty illiterate in that sense. I mean, I, I, I think it was similar. I think it was just pulled back. Like I, I kind of felt the same way about the movie that it, like when I was watching it, I'm like, there's not nearly enough murder in this film for uh, Trent Reznor. Uh, <laughs> david fincher film yeah um which is why like uh you know maybe that's the reason why trent reznor and atticus ross decided to like pull back and make something a little more tame this time um because if you listen to like the gone girl score the uh girl with the dragon tattoo score like it really feels like it's driving and building up to a uh a deathly uh like a deadly climax you know not yeah not so much this where um, like the stakes are high in terms of in, in like relative to Hollywood, but you know, no one's life is really on the line. I guess you could say like, you know, I don't know. 
No, I feel you. That was definitely yeah. something that I was thinking about watching is uh, the ending took me completely by surprise. I did. I thought there was going to be another 10 or 20 minutes <laughs> and then the movie ended. Um, yeah, that, that's why. So like, um, actually, I do want to um, jump onto something and this this would, would actually lead right into the ending here. But um, something that I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, insight and how we've been describing it in the podcast so far. Um, but how we've always kind of described uh, like the how you how finding the insight starts with, you know, adding the whole film to the last scene, you know, which would lead me in this film to kind of believe that uh, Dave, David Fincher really was trying to push a message about Mankiewicz and how like. He like even though Orson Welles gets all the praise for, you know, going in there with some uh, big cojones, you could say. Right. Um, and taking on Hearst when really um, the the person that like really put the knife in his back was Mankiewicz. Yeah. You know, um, and how he kind of showed that, like, it was his experiences with Hearst his like isolation where he wrote this piece with, you know, that typist. Um, and then, uh, Orson Welles coming in at the end and just wanting credit, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it made Orson Welles seem a little more like, uh, ego driven and more like he wanted the image of taking on Hearst rather than, um, doing it for any noble purpose as Mankiewicz did. Sure. You know, I don't know if that's like a, I don't know if that's what his take was, but that's kind of how it felt to me, you know, especially at the end when they don't even really show Orson Welles, they kind of just, uh, yeah, he's just uh, sort of like this guy off in the distance during the movie. He only really comes in at the end. The right. Right. Of it. Um, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know if that's like David Fincher's point with the movie necessarily, but like on that issue, he definitely yeah. does want to clarify and at least give Mankiewicz more credit than he's seemingly gotten. Right. Um, um, but anyways, uh, what I wanted to kind of talk about was how uh, the way that we described it before is uh, what I would call like um, additive, um, like kind of like an additive way to figure out the, um, figure out the insight where I think that to it, it creates like a very general direction of where uh, we think it's going, you know, where we can, we can kind of both agree that like that kind of felt where it felt like where David Fincher was going with the film, hmm. you know, but how we, how we really dig down and figure it out, which we've actually, I don't think we've done really besides uh, maybe the wind rises podcast sure. episode. Um, but uh, what I what I want to call it is just like subtract subtractive deduction where like um, essentially what we do is we take that general idea and then we use other ideas in the film um, to see what doesn't work. Right. What ideas don't work and what ideas are uh, wrong when you see the rest of the film. And when you're working with a master like David Fincher, you know, every film, every scene was in there for a reason. So we can assume that, um, you know like almost no scenes would be in there for filler's sake. Sure. Um, so you can take these other scenes and compare them to each other and juxtapose them to the rest of the film and say like, 
you know, just to be absurd for a second, if we decided to say that this movie was about uh, Mankiewicz's alcohol addiction, right? We would say, mm-hmm. well, no, that doesn't really add up to what the end was pointing out, right? Or even like how he accomplished what he did after he got alcohol. That that would make that not make sense. Sure. Right. Um, so we can like remove that. We can subtract that from what we think that this film is about. You know, but just on like a first glance, it makes me feel like um, this film really does have to do with um, the not the blame for Citizen Kane, but I'd say more the uh, the praise for Citizen Kane uh, going towards Mankiewicz. You know, not to say that Orson Welles didn't do anything because he did a shit ton for that film, you know? Yeah. And the uh, the craftsmanship in the film is amazing but like the bravery that it takes to push that out you know um a lot of like i feel like a lot of people attribute that to orson wells when maybe it was mank that um really deserves the praise for that and that might be why you know it might be kind of like an insider hollywood story where they're like Everyone's like, oh, Orson Welles, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. That's so amazing. He's so brave. But then, like, people that really know what happened, you know, on the inside of Hollywood, right? Like, they might be like, oh, no, it was really this guy, uh, Mankiewicz, who, like, was close to Hearst and uh, close to his wife, especially, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, he was the one that wrote this script and he was the one that, like, filled this film with everything that um hurt hurst right sure um i really like that scene when uh he was at the party drunk and the scene in particular when hurst is walking him out the door yeah the monkey um, scene yeah telling him the parable mm-hmm. um i don't know i, I thought that was well really that's cool. what that's how i would drill it down because i sort of agree with you but i don't know if my main issue with what you're saying and like i don't have a you know I'm not entrenched either way, but I don't know if like David Fincher's point of the movie is to give Mankiewicz credit as much as it is like his fight with Hearst necessarily. Like, sure. I mean, yeah. well, I mean, but that's, that's kind of what I would say is that what I'm, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that like a lot of people just only think about or- Orson Welles in this situation. Yeah, that's true. And, and like you said, he shouldn't be discredited. Obviously he did right. do a lot of work, but they don't mention Mankiewicz. I mean, I had really never heard of Mankiewicz. Right. All, me neither. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um but it's it's an interesting take like kind of portraying Orson Welles as this like up and comer kid that doesn't really have a like have a dog in the race. Sure. You know? And like um he ends up kind of getting all the credit because I mean he did take all the flack. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, like he never worked in Hollywood again after. I mean, he did, right? But just not not with any of the major studios. I think the credits said something to the fact that that was his last, his last film, and he died like yeah. within a decade as well. Yeah, um, I know he made some other stuff. Like I'm pretty sure F is for Fake came after that. He might have been in some other stuff too. I can't really. Oh, I'm sorry. I was talking about Makeowitz there. Um, oh no no no. Um, Orson, Orson Welles, Welles. Yeah, Orson Welles did make a lot of stuff, but after Citizen King. Um, but yeah, he was constantly, from what I understand, at odds with studios from like this point forward. 
Right. Um, a lot of his movies got ripped out of his hands and recut. He was an actor in a lot of famous movies, like Third Man. It's a great movie. Cool, cool. But you're right. Like Towards the end of his life, he was able to do these smaller projects where he had creative control, like F is for Fig. Yeah. Right. But beyond that, like he, he was just kept on the shortest leash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, big time. Yeah. But... Yeah, I don't know, but he's he's widely considered one of the best. Like, if you don't, if you're not really like in with the film gossip, he's considered one of the best filmmakers of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cinema is one of right those mediums with... that has like a best film. You know, like you yeah. only hear that, in my opinion, like you only hear that in cinema and graphic novels. They're, those are the only two like storytelling mediums that are like where people say, "Oh, this is the best thing." You know, and there's like, because you don't hear that in like books, you know, literature yeah. or something or music, yeah. but it's like in graphic novels, it's like Watchmen is the best graphic novel, period. And then, it, you know, in cinema, it's like Citizen Kane is the best movie, period. You know, see, I think it's because a lot of people, uh, a lot of people are visitors in this medium, right? Where like uh, they come from another medium and they just like their their experience with graphic novels is like normal Marvel and DC comics and then Watchmen, you know? So, like, to them, that's obviously the best out of all of them. Yeah, it's something like that. And, like, since they're not an avid consumer of uh, graphic novels, it's hard for them to imagine something better than uh, Watchmen. But when you think about it, like, any medium has thousands and thousands of masterpieces. Oh, yeah. And I also think there's part of it that both of those mediums are still relatively in their infancy. And there's something to say about something that revolutionizes the art form. Yeah, film even more so. Yeah. So yeah. when Citizen King came around, like it seems old to us, right? But the techniques he's using were revolutionary. And yeah, same I mean, thing with Watchmen. It was revolutionary. He did this dark, gritty story, you know? So Well, there's I a reason that uh there's a reason that like Citizen Kane looks modern. And it's not that Citizen Kane looks modern, it's that modern film looks like Citizen Kane. Yeah. You know, um he did a lot of stuff with the camera that uh, we all do now, like as a standard. Mm-hmm. you know and anybody that can come along and change the standard for something is definitely revolutionary um, yeah but and that's why i think it's called like the best necessarily but i think with time it that probably won't be attributed to anything in particular anymore it'll be like a personal thing yeah definitely i mean i think it's a personal thing regardless like oh yeah it is if, if your standard for the best is like what changes the most about its medium you know it, that just becomes the the first of whatever you do, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of ignores the idea of perfecting something, yeah. You know, and I, I would say that like someone like David Fincher is a more perfect version, or even uh, uh, Kubrick, right, is a more perfect version of Orson Welles. Oh yeah, you know, um, where they kind of took what he was doing and pushed it to the next level. And um, I don't know. I guess it, I guess it depends, like whether you want to be someone who does something first or be someone that does something extremely well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, But same thing happens everywhere. You see the same thing in like the Olympics where like someone has a new technique and it totally changes everything. Yeah. It just dominates the game. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But then everyone's doing it in like five years. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, But as far as, uh, as far as the insight for this film goes, like it is, like, I always think it's a little harder to pinpoint with things that are um, like biographies or based on true stories because 
there's a lot of uh, incentive to add things that happened that aren't necessarily helpful for your story. Yeah. Um, now, I actually don't think David Fincher did that. I, like, this felt like a fictional movie. It's nice, too. Yeah. Like, I, I, I really enjoy biopics that focus more on a chapter in the life rather than try to go from the beginning to the end, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was actually... I, I like that he put that in the trailer as, like, a... <laughs> as like a disclaimer hmm. um where he just what was the line he was like it was what he was saying about hearst where he was like um it's you can't you can't capture a whole person a whole man's life you can only capture you can only hope to capture his essence oh yeah yeah something you know? like that yeah, and that was just like in in the first i think it was like the first or second line of the trailer and i just felt like he was just using it as a disclaimer which is funny because yeah. like uh, I did like that because that's it's interesting that Citizen Kane is a film like that. And actually Mank is, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Mank is a similar film, in my opinion, to Citizen Kane in that it really focuses on trying to capture the essence of Mankiewicz. Yeah. You know, um, but. Yeah, no, that was a good movie. Yeah, if I if I I can't, you know, I haven't thought about it long enough or hard enough to sort of like have a perfect sentence to distill what the the inside of the movie is. Yeah. But I, I think frankly it's something to do with a guy reclaiming the magic of the movies, which he's seeing misused and which he also feels he's misused himself sure. to do something right, that you know, to stab back at the guys that are misusing it. Right, um, right. And you know, because there's he he's essentially surrounded by people that he begins to sort of like almost disgust um, in terms of how they you wield their power with the movies and mm-hmm. their privilege with the movies. Yeah. And yeah. so he he turns the gun back around in a sense. And I think, you know, it's sort of like a almost redemption uh, sure. to some degree. Yeah, definitely. I think it's fairly simple. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it needs, you know, I'm not saying I got it right there. Like, oh, yep, that's the insight. But. I think it's it's not a very complex one, right? Well, I can't think of anything in the movie that would. Uh, hold on, I'm thinking. Contradict me. <laughs> what? Yeah, no, I I can't think of anything that's um, would make it so that doesn't work. Yeah. So no, that could definitely be it. Yeah, I mean, it's a guy that has the privilege to see some of the levers of power that were at least like the lever of power that he inhabits as like a worker bee, how sure. it's used, you know, to right, right. sort of, you know, manipulate and control people. And uh, well, because they, br- they brought him along as like the show monkey. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but um, even knowing that, you know, those are scenes where like they're the studio or the Republican committee in California at that time with the studio are like paying um out of work screenwriters to look like bums, you know, walking around right. with Sinclair, like vote for Upton Sinclair signs. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. he's just on the insider uh, track of all this information and he right. just sort of, you know, becomes disgusted with himself and yeah. is surrounding his community. Um, who was the director that uh, ended up shooting himself for making that commercial that caused Sinclair to lose? I don't think that was a, uh, a natural director because remember when you said his whole incentive to do that commercial was that they were going to allow him to direct so he's probably a, a true historical figure i don't know but i don't think he was an actual director uh he was after he made the fucking thing <laughs> yeah it's true <laughs> um 
can you imagine that being your first work? It's like yeah. going against your beliefs and uh, yeah, no, I feel like that was understandable. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah, that, that, that definitely cool... felt like the moment that like shifted Mankiewicz. Um, yeah, that was that was like a low moment. Yeah, yeah, that was his. Uh... What what we can use some really uh, basic screenwriting talk, right? That's like a an inciting incident that happens, you know, like yeah. fifty minutes into the film, <laughs> but technically it happened at the beginning of yeah. why he's writing. <laughs> right, right. Um. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, it's the parable that you pointed out. It's the whole monkey parable, right? Where yeah, Hearst is walking down, and you know, is essentially saying like, imagine you're like a piano playing monkey, right? Mm-hmm. And you're being sent around to all these crowds that are just cheering you. And this old man's just taking care of you. Eventually you're going to think the old man is like your pet, you know, right. That it's inverted. Right. 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 right? Yeah. So it's a, uh, this is his incentive to, you know, switch it around, you know? Right. Right. I, I kind of like, I really like that actor that they chose for Hearst. Yeah. He was great. I've always liked him. I don't know what his name is actually, but I, I've seen him in tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. Same. Um, what is his name actually? I, want... I don't know. I can't click through all these names just to see. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> uh, well, we'll just go Mank Hurst. Sure. Um, yeah, I've seen him, uh, older man, play a lot of older man roles. Uh, yeah, he was in authority. Uh, he was what? Uh, he Tywin Lannister and. Yep, that's him. Um, yeah. So the older evil guy. That's his typecast. <laughs> Yeah, let me let me let me just put in Tywin Lannister because this isn't working. If you're an actor, you 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 need to rejoice if you get typecast as the villains. That's like yeah. the best, the, the best shit. <laughs> You'll right have there. work forever. You don't got uh, to work Dance. on the entire movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you don't got to work before, on the entire movie, but you get to work like you get to be in like a minority of the scene, still get paid nice, and still everyone remembers you, and you're probably the most memorable character. Mm-hmm. So. It's nice. Well, anyways, uh, another thing about this movie I wanted to bring up, which is fitting with a theme I've seen recently. Um, and by theme, I mean, I've spotted it in two directors now. So it's a theme and it's a pattern. It's happening. <laughs> it's uh, not a pattern until we Quentin, see three. <laughs> <laughs> it's Quentin Tarantino um, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Here we have another movie about Hollywood. But interesting enough, I feel like this movie is very similar to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the sense that Quentin Tarantino sort of broke from his established pattern a bit. It didn't feel like a Tarantino movie. And in many ways, this doesn't feel like a Fincher movie if you're thinking about, you know, Gone Girl, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Social Network, and so on. Right. So it's interesting. I don't know what the thought process behind that is. Um, Has he ever done like another biography or anything like that? Because I don't think he has. I don't think so either. The only other thing I can think about that doesn't feel as much like a David Fincher movie to me out of all of his movies is like the curious case of Benjamin Button. But even so, mm. that's more so. I haven't uh, seen that one actually. Yeah. I saw it a long time ago. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I agree. I, I definitely didn't feel like this was a Fincher movie either. And like you could tell in parts, but honestly, for the most part, I, I really couldn't tell. Um, yeah, I mean, if you want that Fincher fix, you know, which I want all the time, so I always <laughs> watch Social Network or Gone Girl 7, this would not be something you'd want to put on. 
Um, right. Because it's just not that. You know, he's very much, uh, I don't want to say imitating because that has a negative connotation, but imitating the classic Citizen Hollywood Kane. style. Yeah. Citizen yeah. Kane, that classic Hollywood black and white style. There's a few times he breaks character, so to speak. Yeah. And you do see a sort of shot you would have never have seen in one of those older movies. But most of the time, it's sort of just an enhancement of that style with all the things we can do nowadays. Yeah. Um, well, also, he he even used the uh, fade to black the way that Citizen Kane did, where they shut mm. off the, uh, what is it, the key light first? Oh, yeah. You know? And I then it catch that. Yeah. Um, is it the key light? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, they'll shut that off, and then, like, it'll aid aid in the quickness of the fade. Yeah. You know? Um, but that's something that Citizen Kane did, and, like... I don't know. That's why I kind of feel like there's definitely a duality here between like how Orson Welles showed was showing Hearst and how uh, Fincher here is now showing Mank. Right. I wonder if I wonder if he's doing that on purpose in the sense of um, using, you know, Orson Welles style that he used. Oh, 100 percent to, you know. Yeah, talk about uh, almost, Mank. Yeah. Well, yeah, talk about Mank because Mank is colored by Orson Welles, right? Like right. you have to talk about them in the pair. It's but yeah, no, 100%. Like this this was definitely shot like Citizen Kane and used used the same cinematic language that Citizen Kane used, which might be why he used a different a different uh cinematographer for this one cuz it, it needed that uh, uh stylistic mimicry. Um that probably like I, I don't know maybe maybe this cinematographer was more in line with uh, Citizen Kane and like maybe studied it for a long time and yeah you know. um but it definitely uh felt the same especially how especially how um it did kind of go back into all these it, it even followed the same like uh story format where uh you know you had what was going on now. And then it would cut back to stuff that happened in the past and have like these uh, story segments almost of Mankiewicz's life that mm-hmm. led to this moment and led to um, kind of this present day storyline. Yeah, the nonlinear right. type of approach. Yeah, but it's well, I mean, but it's exactly like Citizen Kane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it follows it to a T. And that's what that's why I was thinking that that line about how like you only it literally is Mank saying it but you know you you can only hope to capture a man's essence you know yeah. he's talking about citizen kane in that moment but like i feel like that's also david fincher talking about mank yeah you know absolutely and um it's kind of cool to see uh both things happening at the same time um but what i would about, definitely uh, uh, yeah go ahead no go ahead you're good I was just going to say, I definitely would agree with your recommendation now, uh, thinking about it more that like, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, like definitely watch it first, but even maybe go more so and like look into the history of Citizen Kane and like uh, what went on with Orson Welles and then watch Mank. Yeah, it's a classic, (laughs) like it's a new, like, you know, a pairing of films, you know, like a double screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like I should just watch Citizen Kane again, frankly, after watching this. Yeah. Um, it's Hollywood. I feel like more. you'll get a lot more out of it. <laughs> uh, what about yeah, um, Gary Oldman? What do you think? I love Gary Oldman. Yeah, that's uh, a great actor. 
I didn't really take note of him. I was just getting into film, but when Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy came out, I found him really for the first time for myself. Yeah. And I really liked him ever since then. I think he's amazing. Um, he's been uh, kicking ass lately. He did Winston Churchill late uh, recently. Now he's done this. I mean, he's always been kicking ass though. Like he, yeah. Like, (laughs) yeah. Like whether he's in a film or a video game, like he's just, you Mm. know, does great. Yeah. Uh, Cause he was, uh, he was that one guy in, uh, modern warfare. That's true. I Um, forgot about that. The Russian guy. Yeah. I can't remember his name. It was so, he's also that, like, uh, that gangster that sort of like, uh, white, but trying to be like Jamaican gangster in uh true romance. I don't know if Mm. you've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. He does great. Oh, yeah. And he was in uh, The Fifth Element, too, when he was younger. Oh, yeah. 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 The villain. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, he's uh, fantastic. Yeah. He, he's definitely, I think, one of the most uh, underrated actors. Like, I know a lot of people see him for how great he is, but, like, for how great he is, I feel like he should be an A lister pretty much and, you know, yeah. be paraded around with the rest. But, yeah. Well, one other thing about this movie, which I still have question marks about myself, and I don't know if I'm thinking about it too much, if I'm trying to over-evaluate it, but there's the whole side story. Who is it? Is it Lily Collins? Is that the type typist yeah. or is that his wife? I, I think that's... No, I think Lily Collins is his typist. Okay. Yeah. So she's this whole side story where she has a fiancé who's a soldier and his boat sinks Mm -hmm. and they think he might be dead, but she decides to believe that he's going to be living. And then right at the end, right at the fucking climax, essentially. Yeah. uh, Like when Orson Welles is leaving all mad. (laughs) Yeah. He's alive, you know? And I'm wondering, is that just some sort of, I'm like, that has to be something else because it's almost too cheap, frankly, because you're not emotionally invested, frankly, in this character. Sure. Are you, are you thinking it's some sort of allusion to like his, uh, his love for film or something. I don't know. Cause I think it has um, to be because otherwise, what is it? It's there to make you feel happy at the climax. That's the only other thing it could be. And it doesn't work. Which, in, right. Yeah. So. Which David Fincher would never do something like that. Either. Exactly. So what, that's the thing I can't figure out personally. And I'm thinking, you know, it's probably something really simple and I shouldn't focus on it that much anyways, but I, I don't know what it is. Why is I it mean, there? It, I, it, I would it say that it probably me. is some sort of, um, allusion to his uh, I, maybe his love for film or maybe his his like integrity. Uh, <laughs> what was he doing when right before she learned he might have been dead? What was Gary Oldman doing? Right, do you remember that scene? Damn, um, that's what I should rewatch. I feel like he was. Is he drunk? I feel like it was some sort of like self pity moment, and she she brought that up as, or was it a letter that she got? She got a letter, and remember he was. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, he was running his mouth and then she like left and then like told him what happened and he ended up drinking even more because of it. But Mm. uh, yeah, but it's got to it's got to be, you know, symbolic. It's got to be in there for a reason. And I just can't quite figure it out. And that's that and just sort of the ending being abrupt in general are like my only two very small issues with the movie because I still think it's an amazing movie. But mostly maybe. Probably just because my own stupidity. I can't figure it out, but I don't know. So, I, I don't you know. know. We've only seen it. I've only seen it once. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about you, but. Um, I don't know what it means. <laughs> I don't it know. I, I try not to like, especially on a first watch, like I try not to 
overthink it. You know, I, I just want to enjoy the film on my first watch. No, I agree, yeah. but it happened right at the ending, so I was like stuck thinking about it when it, when the movie ended. Like, so yeah. Um, well, if you don't have anything relating else to the movie, I do have another topic. Or do you want to talk about the movie? No, go ahead. A little bit more. All right. What do you think about this in relation to Netflix? Do you think this movie oh. would have been made in the studios? Do you think this movie would have had the same actors in the studios? Um, um <laughs> I kind of, I'm kind of wondering if like, uh, it's a. Uh, it might be a jab from Netflix too that David Fincher aided in, um, because you know that that power, like those powers that existed back then, like they still exist in Hollywood. Oh yeah, you know, and um, like I definitely feel like a biopic of of Mankiewicz would probably have been shot down, uh, by the normal uh, Hollywood chain of executives. You know, like no one really wants to. St- no one wants to really revisit that can of drama, you know? But, yeah. And uh, why would Hollywood executives want to make a movie that's essentially pointing out that they're misusing their power in many ways? You know what I mean? Right, right. Actually, the the fact that Gary Oldman was in this, like, actually gives me a little more respect for him, too, because uh, he, he he's kind of becoming the face of this jab mm. as well. Um, I don't know. I've never really been able to get a uh, get a uh, read on him as a as a person, you know, which is probably good a, a good sign for him as an actor. <laughs> sure, you know, I've never really looked at like interviews of him or anything either. But, um, yeah, no, just just from his characters, like I I can't I really feel like I can't see who he is. But the fact that he decided to, you know, accept the calling for the lead actor in this film. You know, help help uh, David Fincher reopen this can of worms. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting cool. movie for uh, Fincher to do after such a long hiatus. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like Gone Girl came out the year I started film school. You know, like it's been yeah, that does he, long. Does he have anything else coming out? Uh, I don't know. I know he's exclusive with Netflix for the moment. I know oh, really? that he worked on uh, what was it, Mindhunter? That was sort of like his child, him and his team's cool. child. Um, right, right. But I don't know what his next thing is. Was uh, House of Cards a Netflix uh, exclusive too, or was that? Yep. That oh, was, was, and he was a producer on that. He was on like the showrunner on that, from what I understand. But he was. I think he, I thought he made the first couple episodes. Oh, he did. Yeah, but there was like a a showrunner that saw that show through the first few seasons. Right, right. But um, that's cool that he's kind of like a. Uh, in league with Netflix now. Um, That's sort of been his pattern. He's sort of embraced all these changes. He hasn't really been sentimental about any of it, you know. I mean, he was he ever really? Because streaming, like, yeah, like when, when it went for, was when it was going from di- uh, film to digital, he was just like right on top of it, you know. And yeah, he he he's one of the first guys, really. Yeah, and he's never really cared about what all these people say you should do and how you should respect the past or tradition, and he's always been more about you know, progress and innovation and using all that to tell, to make your art better. I also um, think I agree with you on that, but I also think it's the circumstances to some degree, because he likes to make films in a very pecul- peculiar way, you know, a uh, particular way where yeah. it's very demanding. He wants big budgets for films that would normally not be shot for big budgets. Like Gone Girl mm-hmm. would not normally have the kind of budget it would have had, had it not right. been David Fincher. Um, and he wants to do sort of, 
kinds of movies that Hollywood doesn't make that much of, you know? Right. Because they're not that commercial or, you know, that not as commercial as other things they could be making. So I think Netflix is sort of a perfect thing for them to some degree. Right. Yeah. Because. Well, yeah. And they would give us so much freedom, that. too. Um, yeah. And, and if you're. I think he is right on that cusp of like, um, like being, uh, being praised by everyone as a master, you know, like, um, cause he has been by like f- people within the film industry for a long time, you yeah. know, but like a lot of people don't really put his name next to Spielberg, um, in like the household, but I think he's, he's like there now and he's, um, maybe just within the last like 10 years or so. You know, he's achieved that. Um, and Netflix saw it and maybe Hollywood didn't. You know, I, I yeah, wonder if that, that has That is something strange. It. That has sort of happened during a lifetime, hasn't it? Because I don't think, you know, before Social Network or anything, he was thought of that way, right? Right. Even right. though he had made amazing movies like Seven and Fight Club, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But Right. It's interesting. But, like, I, that's kind of what I have a tendency. What I'm seeing is that, like, a lot of Hollywood executives are so um, vain, you know, so self-absorbed that they they have a problem seeing the uh, seeing the golden goose that laid the golden egg, right? All they can see is the golden egg itself. Sure. Right? And they'll like they'll they have a tendency to congratulate themselves for finding the golden egg, yeah. you know, and they let the golden goose go right yeah and they don't appreciate it and someone else that might appreciate it maybe i.e netflix yeah. you know like takes it and those executives wonder why they don't have any more golden eggs yeah you know um and i think i, think I put that uh when we did the seven episode i put in some commentary that brad put and david fincher had on seven on the special features yeah. And he said something very similar about marketing executives, which is, you know, yeah. they all immediately think it doesn't matter. This The answer is the same for every movie that come across the desk. It's like, how are we going to save this? You know, it's right. always them or, you know, they're going to be the ones that are going to make the difference. Save it. They're the ones. When know, in reality, the like they're usually the ones that ruin it. Yeah. You know, and like that's not not to say that's all the time. Like there are definitely movies that have been made better by executives that have stepped in but i think that's it's obvious at that point you know like when when a movie is so obviously bad yeah um when it comes across your desk then like of course you're help you're helping the film as a producer when you step in and you make decisions to help you know save the film but yeah like it like when we're when we're looking at this from an outside perspective right when you think about some random marketing executive coming in to save one of David Fincher's films, like yeah. it, it's absurd, right? It's, it's beyond delusional. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that's on every step of the process, right? Cause you got to imagine thinking about this from the outside, like you said, what happens when a studio executive, they have a process for each project, right? Okay. Now we have the script. The process is I have to give notes on the script, which means they now conditioned to, you know, not it's not a bad thing to give notes, but they're conditioned to find things wrong, you know, right? They're right, conditioned right. to constantly try to put their input to make it better. Which um like personally I would say is extremely difficult in a uh yeah 
in a script like for, for i actually doctor a lot of people's scripts and like i i hate doing it you know i yeah. i hate doing it because it takes a lot of time to do it right right yeah. and it takes a lot of effort to do it right you almost and, have to become a part of the project in like a significant creative way to right really and have any benefit come out of that usually like what i'll do is i'll read it once through and then i'll read it like four or five more times after that um trying to come up with like what I think the person is trying to say, then I'll go talk to them, ask them questions about what they're trying to say, and then go back. And then that's when I'll start like redlining things and saying like, Oh, maybe change this to this. And you know, like that does this work um, in like relatively to how you set up your beginning, you know? Um, but when I see a person like doctoring a script and they start redlining th things before they've even read it once. Yeah. You know, they're like on a first read, they're on page three, and then they like make a little note. Yeah. I'm like, you're full of shit. Like, <laughs> and you have to imagine what some of these notes might be. You know what I mean? Like, right. Well, it's like very personal, guttural reactions to things as opposed right, to right. trying to look at it like, what is David Fincher trying to do here? And how can I, you know what I mean? And that's exactly. at every step of the process. It's interesting, you know, when you juxtapose this as well in the history of cinema, in the eras, the golden eras, well, part of the predecessor to most golden eras um, is the fact that Hollywood is financially failing. And when they're financially failing, what they do is just throw money at anyone and let them do whatever the fuck they want. And then all of a sudden you have a golden era of cinema, you know, <laughs> when, they, when yeah. they sort of take themselves out of the process. And once again, we want to repeat ourselves. Nick said this, I'll say it. Of course, there's exceptions. Of course, people can help in all sorts of ways, but that doesn't seem to be the dominant pattern of how these things work. So. Right. I mean, uh, take a take a Fox for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, like 20 years ago, if you said that they were going to fail and they were going to bought out by Disney, people would have called you crazy. Yeah. Right. Because um, they were so massively successful, right? And but like through the 2010s, you kind of saw this pattern emerge where the executives were extremely, um, how should I put this? Um, they, they kind of had the horse blinders on for what they needed to change about a film, right? Everything mm -hmm. became about money, one, but two, uh, well, I mean, actually to further on one, like they had rules, like all movies had to be like as close to 90 minutes as was possible, right? Because that would allow for more showings in one day. Right. Yeah. And even with a movie that definitely had no more room to cut at two and a half hours, right? Like felt rushed at two and a half hours would still get cut down another hour. Yeah. Um, because it had to meet their arbitrary 90 minute criteria. Right. And mm -hmm. like, because in their mind, they can save this film, make it 90 minutes and they can get so much revenue because they get this extra showing, but they don't realize that they made it. So even, even though there's an extra showing every day, the theater is only going to have one person in it. Yeah. Right. Cause the first, that first group's going to go and it's going to suck and they're going to tell everybody that it sucked and no one's going to go. And this is what happened with films like uh fantastic four, for example. Sure. Right. Which like, if you followed the story of that, it was, it was horrific. And if you actually watched the interviews of like um, the guy who uh, played Dr. Doom, he talks about how there was a cut of this film that was almost an hour longer and it was amazing. Mm. Right. And um, it essentially almost made Dr. Doom the main character, right. For mm. the second half of the film. And you have this 
when when you watch that film because i ended up uh finally watching it like five years after it came out um and it was it was horrible and but the reason that it was horrible is that there were massive plot holes in the film there were just like jumps where nothing was explained and like that's what it feels like when you cut an hour out of a movie that can't afford that yeah you know for these sort of artificial rules that are enforced so to get back on point um fox had a, a lot of these arbitrary rules about things that they would change because they knew what the audience wanted and they didn't see it as this complicated process where the wants and needs of the audience change depending on what kind of film that you're making what you're trying to do with the film you know like um and and they they just kind of tried to create like a blanket rule for everything. Right. And they were focus grouping a bunch and they, they were, they were doing all of these tactics that revolve around um, fear. Right. Mm. And when you make films or when you make any art out of fear, right. Out of fear of it being bad. Um, and you don't, you don't realize that that fear is your lack of knowledge. You yeah. know, you start doing shit like that. Right. And then that's that's the warning signs for the end, in my opinion. Yeah. Right. So yeah, like absolutely. It was pretty clear by like, you know, 26, 2015, maybe, that Fox was going down the drain. You know. Yeah, it is interesting, you know. Um uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a little you, Yeah, sorry. You talk about this lack of fear. Um not a, you should have a lack of fear, but that these fear based decisions that 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 correlates with um, how I like to think about it a lot. I always sort of feel like a lot of the things you hear about uh, the studios and particularly how the executives try to figure out whether or not a film that is being made under their studio is good or not, are, are almost like divining. They're almost like these sort of like magical worldviews, these uh, <laughs> sort of like almost like uh, horoscopes or something like that, where, you know, they have different types of marketing to, uh, tests to like figure out whether or not it's graded on this way they have like different like um equations or i guess you could even call them an algorithm to try to figure out like it has this star and there's this average that this star gets on an opening day combined with the (laughs) fact that it's releasing on this date right and since it's releasing on this date historically we've seen throughout the last century this date for this kind of movie and this kind of genre does this kind of opening right so they do all of this other uh busy work to uh, you know, do their best to like spot a pat- pattern to sort of like divine um, the value or the financial success of their film. You know, well, you know, it's just so it seems so um, almost arcane, frankly. Well, that that's that's uh, or archaic, um, but that is exactly the point, right? Yeah, because like when you have these executives that make everything about, you know, the finances, right. That come in and like try to figure out what corners they can start cutting and, you know, uh, how they can meet their arbitrary goals that have nothing to do with the success of the film. You lose sight of the, this idea that really what you're there to do in a financial aspect is to sell a good product. Yeah. Right. That's all you're there to do. And, um, like, I don't like thinking of my films that way, but, um, unfortunately we have to a lot of the time. Right. Um, but when you look at it like a product, right. 
what it comes down to is selling a good product. And if you sell a good product, people will come, right? And when people get too kind of like drowned in the finances and too, um, they start reading too far into the minutia of how to make that extra dollar. Yeah. You know, they start losing sight of this idea that they need to make a good product. All right, everyone, we're going to end it there, though. Just a quick hour episode to get back on track for the new year. We're going to be doing weekly episodes. No, um, We're not going to release them on any particular day. We're just going to try to get them out each week and get back on schedule for this new year. Um, and we're going to keep it open-ended. We don't know what we're going to do next, um, but sooner or later we'll have a film schedule and you guys can watch along with us. So. And maybe on, on our uh, social medias we can start posting what we think we're going to watch soon. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, anyways, uh, all the links to everything relevant in the description. And I'm sure I'll find some sort of David Fincher interview to get some clips for for you guys here. But we'll see you next week. Bye. See you. A friend of mine, once he was directing his first film and he, and he called me and he said, how many takes can I ask for? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, I'm working with this actress and she's said to me, um, She's only going to give me six takes. And I said, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you ask for whatever it is you need. You know, I, I've never, I, it's never, I've never understood. It's not about the present, it's not about an actor presenting their work to 40 people around them. It's about, you know, it's the boom operator, it's the camera operator, it's, you know, can you, can you tweak the light better? Can you, can the person hit a mark better? Can they be in, you know, there's so many it's not just about the actor, you know. That's the focus um, of of what you're trying to get. But it's but there's it's a ballet between so many different people. And to me, that's the thing: is to make it all coalesce, make it all look effortless. It's all about taste. Mm -hmm. You know, equipment equipment's easy. You know, every every time I see kids who say, "Well, you know, how am I how, how am I going to make my movie unless I can, you know, get Hollywood to pay for it?" It's like Get an iPad. Like, you don't have an iPad. Your parents don't have an iPad. Like, someone you know has an iPad. Like, go make your movie. You know, you can write on it. You can email that script around to your friends. You can get them all to show up at the same place. You can film with it. You can edit with it. There's no excuse.